Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? All right. Yeah, thanks, Matt, for that uh, nice warm welcome. I, it's true. It seems like uh, since we've been here, and we have only been here a couple of years, it seems like so many people have come and visited, and they've come from different parts of our life over the years, and we've been in Orlando for, for many years, and it's funny how people just walk in the door and, hey, you know, haven't seen you in a few years, but welcome, you know. Just keeps happening over and over again, so that's been the running joke, but um, I'm just so excited to be sharing with you guys this morning. This is my first time in, in front of you and uh, my first time in front of a church, actually, so um, I'm honored to have the opportunity to share with you this morning. Oh. The grace of God is exciting, isn't it? It's life-giving, Right? Um, I discovered over the years that I had the wrong idea about God. Did you ever get the wrong idea about God? Did you ever, maybe you were in church for many years, maybe you grew up in church, different denominations, different levels of religiosity, maybe independent churches, whatever, but after a while you just started to wonder, do I really trust him? Do I really believe he loves me? Because I also believe this other stuff that kind of flies in the face of what I'm trying to believe about him, what's really true, you know? And what I discovered is that um, when I was willing to give up my ideas of God, I was finally teachable (laughs) about who God really is, you know? I finally learned that the Holy Spirit could speak to my heart and could show me who he really is when I was willing to give up my ideas about God. And I started taking a new journey, you know, really started little by little over many years and seeing things about God that piqued my interest, that caused me to be curious, that caused me to ask questions. And I found that when I was asking questions of some people, they were like, yeah, yeah, and we could talk and we could have fellowship. And when I would ask questions of other people, they were like, no, 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 that's, that's not right. That's, you know, you can't believe that stuff. You know, don't listen to that person. And I realized over time that God is good that he's only good, <laughs> right? Um, and sometimes there's things in the Bible that we don't understand, and we attribute certain things to God because of something we've read or some, the way somebody characterizes God. We attribute to God things that aren't really true, but those things take root and take hold in our heart, and then they affect our lives, and they affect how we think about ourselves, and they affect how we think about other people and how we treat them, Right? And so when we start to have this new discovery, this fresh uh, revelation in our hearts about who God really is, it completely changes us. And it's like I got, I I joked in the, uh, we had the nine o'clock class going, I guess it was several months ago, and I joked uh, to the group that I, I felt like I had gotten reborn, you know, born again, again, you know, um, so I, I realized the more people I talked to and the more that I started rereading the Bible that a lot of people have difficulty recognizing who God really is, recognizing his voice when he's speaking. Is that his voice or is that the voice of another? Is that who he really is or is that somebody or something trying to convince me of who he is? And I realized that this happened in the Bible over and over again. It happened in Scripture over and over again because on our own, we tend to get the wrong idea about God. We rely on our natural understanding, our human reasoning. We rely on our um, our logic, you know. We think, well, okay, God must be this way because that's what we expect him to be like. But it turns out our selfish pride gets in the way and distorts what we think about God. 
It distorts what we're hearing from God. We're not hearing his voice clearly. We're not interpreting what's written on the page clearly. Um, and we have fear and unbelief that separates us and causes space between us and God, so we're not able to hear clearly. The Pharisees and the scribes had this problem. We, we probably know the story if we've been in church for any length of time. These guys were the stewards of the scripture, the teachers of the law of God. The Jewish people relied on these guys for knowledge of God, right? They came to the synagogue and were taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. And it turns out they misunderstood who God is in a pretty big way, right? We, we know they didn't recognize their, their Messiah. We, we, we also can see that they didn't really know who God is, what he's like. Um, we can see this in John chapter 8, for example. Um, there's a story that many of us are familiar with where the scribes and the Pharisees try to trap Jesus. And they bring a woman to him, right? And when they do this, um, take a look at what they expected. See if you can hear what did they expect Jesus to do about sin when he was confronted with sin versus what did he actually do about sin when he was confronted with it. So John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came back into the temple court, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began teaching them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand in the center of the court, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. So what do you say to do with her? What is your sentence? They said this to test him, hoping that they would have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and began writing on the ground with his finger. Didn't even respond, you know? However, when they persisted in questioning him, he straightened up and said, Who is without any sin among you? Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and started writing on the ground. They listened to his reply, and they began to go out one by one, starting with the oldest ones, until he was left alone with the woman standing there before him in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She answered, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's an amazing story, right? Yeah. An amazing story. The Pharisees were so convinced that they understood the Scripture, that they knew who God really was. So convinced that they had the audacity to weaponize the Scriptures against this woman against the Lord, to try to box him in, to try to trap him, to try to trick him. Well, he's got he's to take up what Scripture says. He's got to, you know, authorize her killing, or we're going to be able to, you know, destroy his influence because he's going to say, for, he's going to start talking about forgiveness of sin again, and we're going to be able to say that's opposite of the Word of God. They thought they had an open and shut case. The Word of God is irrefutable, Right? They didn't even know God, it turns out. They didn't even know him. They only knew the words on the page. They believed because of the words on the page that God 
throws people away. God discards people. He's willing to do that over sin. That's what they believed about God. What an awful, awful picture about God. An easy mistake to make, though, because it's human nature. Before we start to decide we wouldn't have done the same thing had we been in their shoes, we can look at the disciples, right? They walked with Jesus for more than three years, and they made the exact same mistake. On the night before he died, in fact, he even said that to them, you don't, you don't even know me. You don't even love me. To his disciples, right, at the Last Supper. We can see, though, a particular example of where they missed it in a similar way. Uh, I think this was preached on recently. In Luke chapter 9, we can see a story where it was pretty close to the time where Jesus was going to be going to be crucified and was going to be raised again. And he had decided, I've got to get to Jerusalem, right? That's where everything's going to go down. So he starts setting his face towards Jerusalem, but on the way, they pass, they're going to be passing a, a Samaritan village. And um, as, we, as we read through this story, see if you can see what's wrong with how the disciples responded to the sin of the people versus how Jesus responded. In Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 51, it says, Now when the time was approaching for him to be taken up to heaven, he was determined to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went into a Samaritan village to make arrangements for him. But the people would not welcome him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. They had a thing about that. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? But he turned and rebuked them, his disciples. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they journeyed on to another village. Can you believe it? The disciples who had walked with Jesus had seen the, the deaf, you know, be able to hear, the, the lepers cleansed, the, the dead come back to life, the, you know, the mercy that was shared by the Lord. I mean, they themselves walked in those miracles and laid hands on the sick under his authority raised the dead, and so on. And they saw all of this goodness, all of this love and care and compassion for the people. And the first thought they had when someone rejected Jesus, didn't receive Jesus, they said they deserve punishment. Maybe, maybe we should even prove we've got enough faith to call down uh, fire from heaven like Elijah. That'll impress the Lord. They thought they could use their faith in that way, that that would please God turns out they didn't even know God, though they walked with the Son of God for years. Isn't that amazing? When we rely on our natural understanding, when we rely just on the words on the page, this is the mistake we all make. It's not just unique to them, right? They walked with the Lord himself in the flesh, right, and still didn't know God. It turns out it's the Spirit that we need. The Spirit teaches us what he's really like, the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is where the life-giving truth comes from, and we need him to share it with us. The Apostle Paul was, talk, was writing a letter to the Corinthians. We can read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he explains what he is a minister of and what he is not a minister of 
Watch this, starting in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Wow. The words by themselves in Scripture are not life-giving by themselves. Why? Because we're using our natural understanding. We're using our human reasoning. We're stuck in this body of flesh, right? We have these ideas, these fears, these anxieties about God, these doubts about who He is. And so we, you heard Rick talk the other day about perspective, filter. We have these filters on how we view God. But the Holy Spirit comes and replaces all that. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to us that God is life-giving. But the words result in death if we don't invite the Holy Spirit. The, res- the words by themselves result in, our mind converts them, the text itself, into like black and white thinking, converts it into comparisons between ourselves, rules to obey, punishments to dole out. That's all we can see in our flesh. If we just analyze with our own understanding, we res- that results in false ideas about God. But the Spirit of God brings the words of Scripture to life by revealing himself in those scriptures. We know Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? He's the truth. The Spirit of God is the one who leads us to understand all truth. So how do we find the truth? John 16 says, when the Spirit of truth comes, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Isn't that amazing? Even with Jesus, the truth, standing before you, Without the Spirit revealing to you who He is, what He's here for, what He's about, what He's motivated by, we don't get it, you know? It's just the weakness of our flesh. His Spirit belongs to those who belong to Him. We have this guarantee. It's not something we have to go out and search for and find and hope for and pray for enough of, get enough of. Jesus promised that his sheep do hear his voice. Isn't that good? He promised it. We can hear him already if we are his. Jesus referred to those who believe in him as sheep. Are you a sheep? The world says don't be a sheep, right? Don't be a sheep. That's what the world says, right? That's what we say on social media. Stop being a sheep. Don't just follow what people tell you. What a humbling thing to be called by your, your Savior, right? <laughs> You're the sheep of my pasture, you know? I'm your shepherd. Compared to him, though, you know? So his sheep follow him. Well, how do they know to follow the shepherd? How do they know they're his? How do they know, okay, that's his voice, right? The voice of the shepherd is the voice of the Spirit. We have the Spirit of Christ, John chapter 10, John writes about Jesus when he was preaching about this idea that he's our shepherd and we're his sheep. Starting in verse 2, it says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This is the story where he's talking about multiple shepherds bring all their sheep into like this giant pen or something like, you know, enclosed area. There's a gate. There's one way in. There's one way out. There's a gatekeeper. And the shepherds come in and out of this gate. And the sheep are all collected and mixed up inside this pen. And a shepherd, when he comes through the gate, calls to his sheep because he wants to bring them out now of, the sheep, of that sheepfold and bring them out from the other sheep. So how does he do that? He calls to them. How do they know it's their shepherd? They recognize his voice. It says, continuing on in verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. We know his voice. This is a guarantee. This is not, you know, how often have we heard, you know, we need to spend more time in prayer so we can hear his voice. We can learn to recognize. You got you to spend time, spend time, spend time. You got to work this thing up. You got to get this skill. You got to you got to fine-tune your hearing. you got to adjust that dial. It's not a challenge to complete. It's not an obligation to fulfill. This is not an opportunity to guilt believers into trying harder to hear God's voice. Actual sheep do not hear human language. They don't understand the words of the shepherd. They hear the sound of his voice. They know what he sounds like. They recognize that sound. If we are a sheep, then we already know what our shepherd sounds like and what he does not sound like. We know what sounds like him and we know what does not sound like him. This is the promise that he made to his sheep. It's a promise. We can just receive it. Okay, but I'm still not sure if I'm hearing his voice. I still don't know if I can recognize it. How do I know? How do I know for sure? Well, who are his sheep? Yeah. You're his sheep. How do you know? Well, let's... So Jesus would stand on the Mount of Olives and preach, right? We all know the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Some, on this journey that Matt was talking about, that I've been on, I discovered some things in there that I had never heard before. For example, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, the humble, got it. Okay, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about saved people. He's talking about going to heaven. He's talking about all the things that are promised. He's talking about everything that was purchased at the cross belongs to people who are poor in spirit. I got to understand that better. Poor, poor in spirit. People who have nothing to their own credit before God are poor in spirit. Do I think that I have some goodness, some good deeds, some, I've been trying hard enough, I've been devoted enough, I've been serving enough, I, I went to the mission field, I did the, do I think those things? That God now is going to reward me for doing those things and is going to let me into heaven because I've been a good person? Or am I poor in spirit? Turns out he gives the wealth of the kingdom of heaven, the true riches, to people who are poor in spirit, not to people who think they're wealthy before God, rich before God. 
Those who have nothing to their own credit before God, they are his sheep. It's that simple. Those who have no righteousness on their own, they are his. They are his sheep. Further down in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. (laughs) This is not a spiritual passion that we cultivate. Do you see that? How many messages have you heard? Essentially, beating the sheep. You understand what I'm saying? You need to live holy. You need to live righteous so God will be pleased with you. You heard that one? It's not true. God's pleased with you. God already loves you. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to show us. It's not a commitment that we make to live more holy. It's a realization, it's a discovery that we make, that we have no righteousness of our own. And when we make that discovery, we cry out, God, I'm starving. I'm hungry and thirsty for you because I can't find any goodness of my own. There's nothing good in me. Jesus said, there's no one good, no, not one, right? He confirmed it. There's, there's, there's none of us that can go around and say, I've done enough. I, I'm pretty sure I'm good enough to get in. You know, he's, he, you know, I'm a good person. If I say that I live righteous and holy and I avoid sin and therefore God is pleased with how I live, therefore God is pleased with, with me, we've got it backwards. Yeah. We've got it backwards. We can't hear his voice. Yeah. We get self-righteous. We get puffed up, and then we think God sees people that way, and then we judge other people that way, right? Instead of, he rescued me. I didn't have anything good. I don't have anything good in me except him. That's it. Those are the people who are his sheep. The promise is to people who are poor in spirit, who have nothing good in them. The promise is to people who have no righteousness of their own. Isn't this good news? <laughs> His spirit is close to you. It's ex- he's accessible to you. He's near to you. You don't have to try harder to find him. You don't have to try, you don't have to try hard. It, it was the, were those his words? Did he speak this to me? He's near to you. He's close to you, closer than a brother. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Clark spoke about this just last week. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, God, am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God is lowly of heart. Lowly of heart. Do we see him that way? Do we know he's that way? He's lowly of heart. He's gentle. He's not confronting sin angrily. He's not giving you a piece of his mind. He's not condemning you. He's not shaming you. He's gentle and lowly. 
of heart. And he identifies with the lowly and humble. He says that he dwells with them. He's so close to them that he dwells with them. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is on Isaiah 57. Verse 15, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Yeah, he's holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's what he's doing. That's his purpose. That's his mission. That's what he wants for you, is to revive your heart. When you see the truth inside of you and you turn to him, he's drawn to you. You you ever heard um, where it says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds? So the person in sin, you and me or others, lost in sin, whatever it may be, his grace is like chasing you down, surrounding you, closer to you than the one who thinks God's pleased with him because he's good. There's more grace running after that person. But if we have the wrong idea, we're going to point at that person and say, God's judging them. God's disappointed with them. God's angry with them. But he's not. He's saying, if they only knew what I'm really like, they wouldn't be running away from me. And if they would let me satisfy their soul with my goodness, with my riches, so they would no longer be poor, that void would be filled, that vacancy would be filled, then the chasing of all those things becomes unnecessary. They would find their satisfaction in me. Such good news. I'm just going to say amen to myself. It's God's nature to be humble-hearted and to favor the humble-hearted. James chapter 4 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is, Brett. He opposes the proud. It's not all good. Well, we'll see that in just a minute, how he opposes the proud. So what have, we, what have we covered so far? What do we know so far? Well, the Spirit of God teaches us who God really is. He's gentle and lowly. He's always near to the lowly and the humble. He promises that we are His if we have no righteousness of our own and nothing to our own credit before God. And we have His promise that we can recognize what sounds like Him and what doesn't sound like Him. So we can trust and follow Him. So, what's the Spirit of God seeking and accomplishing on the earth? What are we a part of? What did He come to establish? What are we following in His footsteps to do now that we have His Spirit and we know what He, what he is and who He is and what He sounds like? Let's, let's read what He said in Luke chapter 4 when He came to the synagogue, as was His custom, to read, and they handed Him the scroll from the book of Isaiah, and He turned to a particular portion. It says in verse 16, 
And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. These people knew him. This must have been quite a blast for them. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord, there's the Spirit again, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wow. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They knew him from childhood, right? And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah was prophesying about the anointing of the Spirit that would be on the Lord and why he would be on the Lord. Why was the Spirit upon the Lord? What was he accomplishing on the earth through Christ? Pursuing and rescuing the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Have you figured out yet that that's us? Look, some say that this is only part of the picture of God, right? Some say that this is a watered-down gospel. They do, right? You've probably heard it. They say that it's sugarcoating the truth. You heard that one? But notice something. They're implying that the truth is a hard truth, a bitter truth, a harsh truth. Because if all this good stuff is missing the truth, that's what they're implying, right? But Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. He is the truth. He himself. Truth is a person. Make sense? Notice that each of these accusations carries within it an implication about God as well. Remember we were talking about getting the wrong idea about God? So you tell somebody the good news and somebody says, that's not the whole story. You're sugarcoating the truth. Tell the hard truth. Tell the real truth. Preach about sin. Preach about repentance. Getting right with God. Doing what you can to live holy. Trying harder. These things imply that God's not good all the time. That his goodness is not available to you without measure. Instead, they put conditions on it. God can only be those things within certain limitations, only if you qualify. <laughs> That's bad news. That's what we were stuck in. That's what he freed us from. But we haven't been able to trust God because of this. It's no wonder, right? We haven't been able to let ourselves be loved by him because of this, right? Right? But we get to look at Jesus, in whom the entirety of God dwells. You want the whole truth? 
the entirety of God, all that he is, it says, dwelled and was pleased to dwell in Christ, walking upon the earth with the Holy Spirit upon him, he represented God perfectly. And how did he confront sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of someone else? What did he do about it? Did he join with those who grabbed the rocks and said, the law says? Or did he say, hmm, something else is at play here that you guys might be missing. What spirit should we be of? Can we hear the voice of the spirit now? You know, at the birth of Jesus, the angels showed up to some pretty lowly shepherds in the field. Not who you would announce the arrival of a king to, unless you're God. Are you seeing who God is versus who we think he is? What did the angels announce to them? They announced glad tidings of great joy that will be to all people. It's good news. It's only good news. There is no hidden bad news. God is not pulling a bait and switch. So let's do a sound check, shall we? One, two. Can you hear his voice now? Because you're his sheep. Can you hear what he's like versus what he's not like? Can you hear somebody else coming against sin in a judgmental way and saying, we've got to do better, we've got to be better, we've got to stop this, we've got to live holy, we've got to try harder, we've got to work to please God. The scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman who was caught in adultery. And he said, he who has no sin among you, throw the first stone. Look how gently he dealt with the Pharisees wickedness. Not only did he rescue the woman, but the evil of these Pharisees weaponizing the scriptures against this woman, wanting to just discard her as collateral damage so they could get their way and discredit Jesus. He basically hints, look within yourself, be honest with yourself, right? Are you really that innocent that you have the right to stand and accuse this woman? Or could it be that you might be guilty of the same thing as she is? This is good news. There's none of us who are good. He said to the woman, I do not condemn you because God doesn't humiliate the condemned. Right? He rescues and upholds them. Isn't that amazing? He said, go and sin no more. Aha! I knew you'd come around to that, Brett. There it is, the hard truth. You got to live right. Well, the obligation to live right existed under the law of Moses already. They were already obligated to avoid sin. Could they do it? Was it even possible? It was not. That's why they needed a savior. That's why Jesus had to come. That was the whole point. Because we're all poor in spirit. We're all hungering and thirsting for righteousness unless we think God is differently, unless we think he's holding something against us and withholding from us, but he's not. His spirit is close to us. What was impossible under the law, 
he was making possible under the spirit of grace and under the spirit of truth. He was setting her free into what is now possible because he had transformed her by his love. He had rescued her in an epic fashion. She thought she was going to die that day, but he didn't humiliate her. He upheld her, right? He leveled the playing field and brought his grace to that situation. Can you hear it? Is it clearer now? When the disciples wanted to judge that Samaritan village, he said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Look how gently he confronted their sin when the disciples wanted to confront the sin of others, even the self-righteous among us. (laughs) Get confronted gently because he's lowly of heart. That's who he is. That's what he's like. What he sounds like when he speaks, we know that his goal is to save and not condemn. Sorry. To rescue, not destroy. To forgive, not to punish. To show mercy, not judgment. To give life, not death. To bless and not curse. And this is a promise for you and for others. And we get to share it once we experience it for ourselves. You see that? The Spirit transforms us because he reveals to us. And then we get to share that with others. So I'm not here to say do better. Isn't that what they usually say at the end of messages in most churches? Something, some flavor of that? I'm here to announce that you are free. The truth sets us free, doesn't it? He is the truth that sets us free, and we get to share him. We're not trying to muster more love for other people out of the bucket of love we think we have for them in our hearts. We are looking into the depths of his love for us, and we're being transformed by it. We're being filled up by it until it overflows out of us, and we get to share out of that overflow, out of that abundance. How can we withhold that from someone, no matter how much sin they're in? How can we not love? How can we not have compassion? Because we are the same, needed the same, right? We're not different. It's a lot easier to give when you have an abundance than it is when you have little, right? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. God is so good. Heavenly Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your precious Holy Spirit that is near to us, that is in us. Thank you that you dwell in us and you're constantly revealing who you are, who Jesus is, what he's doing and accomplishing on the earth through your spirit and through us. Thank you for giving us this great hope that we have in you. Thank you that this joy comes alive in us because of how good you are, because you've set us free because you've made us new. Thank you that not only do we get to experience the newness of life in Christ every day, but then that just spills out. We don't have to go work harder to evangelize. It comes natural. For some reason, we're smiling funny. Thank you, God, for making us smile funny. 
joyful in circumstances where it doesn't make sense. At peace, God, when we're surrounded by trouble and pain. Thank you, God, for healing our hearts with your love. Thank you, God, for having mercy on all of us and bringing us to new life again. We thank you for the good news that is Jesus Christ. In his precious name, amen.